0: And it's, it's fundamentally a psychological phenomenon, right? Exactly. It's people that are, what we joke, that Bitcoin's an IQ test, right? People are sort of figuring it out in different layers based on, I guess their are different worldviews or frameworks that, because Bitcoin is something very, like even the Austrians, right? It was outside of their framework or worldview. So it's it was its emergence was not something we could easily assimilate into anyone's worldview, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like it, it kind of had to follow that path, cypherpunks, libertarians, and and outward from there.
1: Whoever's ready to uh, understand it. And I like to say that in our world, the, the process of monetization is obviously happening a lot faster than gold. Mm-hmm. But I like to say information travels at the speed of light, but understanding does not. Oh, that's right. Uh, put um, so that's why... Bitcoin isn't instantly monetized despite being the best form of money objectively that humanity has ever seen.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Again, that's Wolf NYC, W O L F N Y C dot com. VJ Boyapati, welcome to the What Is Money show. Thanks for having me, Robert. I'm a big fan
1: of yours, so I'm really excited to speak with you.
0: Well, I'm a bigger fan of yours because you were instrumental in my orange pilling, uh, <laughs> the bullish case for Bitcoin. That's right. Take the orange pill. That's what I like yes. to say. <laughs> One of the greatest essays ever written on Bitcoin. Um, you are. The definition of an OG, you've been around for quite a long time, and you've inspired many people's rabbit hole journey, I think. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, And we were just talking offline about what we're going to talk about. And one of the things that came up was that the Austrian economists, which you and I both look up to in many respects, Mm -hmm. may have actually been wrong about money um, and not conceiving of Bitcoin even as a possibility prior to its inception. And I thought that would be a fun topic to go into today, where the Austrian economists might be wrong, given that they're right about so many things against the backdrop of Keynesian economics. So where should we start on that topic? So I'm a student of Austrian economics.
1: I've read you know, the magnum opus, I think, in in the, the field of Austrian economics, which is uh, Ludwig von Mises' Human Action, which lays out a, a very comprehensive foundation for how you approach economics. The methodology of Austrian economics, which I subscribe to, which is that price formation comes from our actions. We we analyze it from the bottom up, which is human actions and our motivations ultimately create these economic phenomena. And you should start from the bottom up as opposed to looking at economic aggregates and trying to find correlations and then trying to create rules in a way that you would with uh, physics or chemistry. It really does not apply because economics and uh economies are inherently complex systems. Uh so you really need to start by underly- uh, understanding the underlying causality. And that's the that's the method of the Austrian. So I was an Austrian student of Austrian economics before I knew anything about Bitcoin um and I, I w- was what you would call a gold bug. I mm-hmm. thought gold was uh a great form of money and uh couldn't be you couldn't print more of it. Uh So, when I was first exposed to Bitcoin, I was first really skeptical. Mm -hmm. Like, this is created de novo out of nothing. How does this have any value? Um, And a lot of Austrians said, well, it shouldn't have any value. It's created out of nothing. It's kind of a paper fraud. It's a Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is going to go away. Uh, And it didn't go away. I discovered Bitcoin in 2011 and by 2012 I was like there's something here and I think my background in Austrian economics led me to believe this is a this is a kind of money hmm and it, you know that's when I my journey down the rabbit hole uh, began and how do you even understand this thing and I think the question of how Bitcoin has any value it has a price level is the most important economic question of the last century and i think austrians the prominent austrians really failed on this issue because they had the tools to understand bitcoin but they were so badly misapplied and a lot of them i think are not very um uh familiar with technology uh and and to understand bitcoin is a multi-dimensional thing right mm-hmm. you, you need to understand economics but you also need to understand a little bit of computer science, a little bit of legal theory, a little bit of game theory. And I think the Austrians, a lot of them were missing some of those pieces. So they dismissed it really early. And I think it's one of the great tragedies in the history of Austrian economics that we have this new form of money created out of nothing that has the attributes of the best money that we've ever seen, that humanity's ever seen. And it was misunderstood. I think there was a huge uh, miss for Austrians and I think a big failure. Um, that's not to say I, I have any animosity towards any of these Austrians. A lot sure. of them are people who I've learned a lot from and who've had a lot of influence on me. I just think it's a big failure. And I, I I, really think that bothers me most is that they never came around to realizing how important this is. Sure, This is something that requires attention and study. And the thing I think it really should teach us is that we need to be students of money and you know i think you've got a great title for your podcast because this is a this is a huge question that we don't understand i think bitcoin exposed that the austrians as insightful as they were on money in and the history of money uh, missed something here mm-hmm. and bitcoin is something that can teach us and i think we should be students i think we should be have some humility and say what are the things that we missed in the Austrian account on the origin of money mm-hmm. that aren't correct? And I think there are a few big ones to be honest that, yeah. that we' missed.
0: Yeah, and I think the central issue here is what's called the uh, Mises regression theorem. hope I'm saying that correctly. And it, just to echo back what you're saying, like even the great Austrian economists, right the, the libertarian philosophers, these the the giants upon whose shoulders we stand, brilliant, right? In many respects, they still kind of missed this thing about money. There's something about money that even they didn't understand that they perceived Bitcoin as something that did not fit into that framework. And clearly we're generalizing here. I'm not, I think we're going to focus on particular thinkers like Rothbard, Mm -hmm. um, in, in his evaluation of the Mises regression theorem. But it's just, I think another reminder of how complex of a topic this really is. And after having done this show for 300 plus episodes, I still have more questions about it than I do answers. And we've accumulated a lot of answers to the question, "What is money?" But it each answer seems to generate more questions. So it's not no one's fault. We're not pointing at anyone, saying like they messed up or screwed up. But it's uh, I think just. A reminder of how complex this domain is. Absolutely, and money
1: is such a central thing in any economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a critical thing to understand, and you're absolutely right. We don't have a full grasp on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned the regression theorem, and the regression theorem was uh, it was a concept created by Ludwig von Mises in the early 20th century, and it was he was trying to explain where does the value of money come from? Why do people value? Why does why is the price whatever it is today why is the price of bread a certain way uh and his explanation for it was pretty simple actually um and and intuitive when you think about it it's one of those ideas in economics when you think about it you're like oh that's obvious well the price of bread is four dollars today because it was four dollars yesterday and most people remember that and they would think it's Something's wrong if it suddenly jumped to eight dollars. They would go to the grocery store and say, "I'm not going to buy your bread. It was four dollars yesterday, yeah. and well, why was it, you know, four dollars or close to four dollars yesterday? Maybe three ninety nine yesterday. Well, it's because it was that the day before. And his idea was that you kind of regress back in time, but but to what? Where does that original value come from? Mm-hmm. And his explanation was that it comes from some. Uh, useful commodity value like before it was money it was useful in some way mm. and so with gold gold used to be money in the 19th century where did that original price level come from it came from the fact that people used gold for other things so jewelry um, religious ceremonies that those kind of things and then uh, von Mises had a student Rothbard prominent Austrian economist and libertarian and brilliant thinker great guy I have a lot of respect for him um and he interpreted mises's theorem in a stronger way which is i interpret mises's theorem as here is an explanation for the origin of money as it happened with gold right
0: descriptive
1: yeah descriptive exactly right and rothbard went further and made it prescriptive he said this is the only way that money can come about. Mm. Money can only come about in this process, and it must always originate as a useful commodity. And I think that influenced Rothbard, was hugely influential influential in Austrian circles, and still is. Okay. Um, I think that is what influenced a lot of modern Austrians to think that bitcoin can't be money because it, it wasn't a useful commodity it was just this digital thing and it wasn't really used for anything yeah uh and so you have a lot of austrians and gold bugs say this is not physical it's not tangible you can't do anything with it yeah. so it can't possibly become money because of that original use right. value not being there but of course you know this is something that we can learn from we can learn that hey something can gain an original value just as a whimsy and that's what Bitcoin was. Why did people value it? Because humans sometimes value things for no reason at all. It's just cool. And those you know, original cypherpunks who were playing around with Bitcoin, they didn't know how to value it. They said, you know, okay, how about 10,000 Bitcoins for a pizza? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: They just put a random price on it and mm-hmm. someone was willing to pay. And so you get that first price. Right. And that first price with gold may have been uh, you know, religious use or may have been jewelry first price for Bitcoin is just a random occurrence, but that's okay. And that's how price formation can begin as a random occurrence. And then it builds on that. And the next time someone says, well, I saw that someone bought a pizza for 10,000 Bitcoin. That seems like some kind of reasonable value. So I'm going to build on that. And eventually a price level is discovered over time. Mm. I think that is one big mistake that the Austrians made was that thinking there's an original commodity value.
0: Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high res three inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility, and it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, The Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector. And then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock.
1: This insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to. That's an insurance. They shouldn't even
0: call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Another big one,
1: uh, I think is a big hole in the Austrian account of the monetization of any economic good is the role of speculation mm. that speculators will see an economic good being monetized. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh And when any form of money is being monetized, it's generally very fixed in supply, has inelastic supply. That's true of gold uh, and all the things that were chosen by humans as money. As the demand grows for that thing, the price is going to start skyrocketing, right? Um, There will be speculation In in that uh, price appreciation, people will see the price appreciating and say, I want to get ahead of that, so I'm going to buy some Bitcoin. And that's actually a feedback loop that that hastens the process of monetization. And the Austrians never talked about that. They talked about something becoming more widely adopted because it was more marketable. Mm So you want to do a trade, you're a fisherman, and I am. I grow apples, yes. and it's hard to trade, so we look for something else, which we both have, yes. and then the most marketable good wins. That account, I think, has a lot of merit to it, but alongside that is the speculation, yeah. and, and that's the part they miss. So they see Bitcoin, they, they see these people investing it, and as they say, speculating it, mm-hmm. and they think, well... That can't be money. They poo-poo it and they say people are speculating this is a speculative asset. But that is always going to be part of monetization. And I bet you, uh, you know, I'm I'm not a, a historian of antiquity, but I bet you anything that there were people in antiquity who were speculating in gold as well, sure. who saw that gold was uh, spreading out around the world um, as trade routes expanded and, and trade deepened amongst different countries new countries would adopt gold. And I'm sure that there were people who recognized the value of gold seems to be increasing in our city or our community. I want to own more gold. Yeah, And that hastened the process of yes. gold becoming money in those communities. When merchants see something becoming valuable and they want it, that becomes the more marketable good. So I think there's an interplay here that the Austrians didn't appreciate. And I didn't appreciate, to be honest, before I discovered Bitcoin, But being a student and sitting back and observing um, what's happened with Bitcoin, I think it's absolutely true and obviously true that when something appreciates in price because it's becoming more widely adopted, Mm -hmm. someone's going to start speculating in that. Yes, Entrepreneurs always see opportunities and they always begin speculation when they see
0: those opportunities. Yes. And it's interesting because in your essay, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, I think does a great job explaining this very issue that it's a game theoretic process, right? It's people see a good being adopted as a store of value. It's purchasing power. Price is increasing Mm -hmm. and people just, you know, look out into the future, extrapolate and think, what if this keeps happening? Mm -hmm. Why don't I buy some of this thing now, which contributes to the reservation demand for the good, which increases its price, which spurs further speculation. And like the cycle can get out of hand, obviously, right? Tulip mania and things like this, but um, it does seem to be instrumental to the process of monetization. And and on Mises regression theorem, all you need is some original reservation demand, right? Like right. just some, it doesn't have to be a commodity use per se. It's just like, are people holding this thing for any reason whatsoever? So with Bitcoin, the early days was like this weird collectible. Yep. Right? Like there's only 21 million of these things. I'm getting them through a faucet on a website. I've got, a thousand of 21 million and I, eventually what it was the pizza was one of the first trades then they started to to map the price to the uh, electricity necessary to produce the Bitcoin and then that started that bootstrapping process of price discovery Yep. and so it seems like and Austrians should have understood that because what does Mises say like all human action is speculative actually yeah. so we're all everything you do you can't possibly know the outcome you're basically speculating that your intention is going to map to the outcome you're trying to create. Sometimes that happens, sometimes that doesn't. Mm -hmm. But there's this this inherent speculative nature to human action itself. So I'm surprised that at least Rothbard, I guess we can't speak on behalf of Mises, obviously, Mm -hmm. because as you said, he, he laid it out more as a descriptive account of monetization, not a prescriptive. So maybe he would have seen it differently, but Rothbard at least Maybe took it a step too far, making it prescriptive. I
1: think so, and I like the way you described it. All you need is that original reservation demand, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's only a small change to Mises's regression theorem to make it apply to Bitcoin as well. Yeah, uh, but uh, I think it it, it is a, a lost opportunity and a disappointment, and I and I hope that uh, folks in the Austrian community will come back because I really do believe we're at this important epoch where a new money has been created and it deserves a lot of attention. And it was only the people who weren't necessarily, you wouldn't call them Austrians, but people who were influenced by the Austrians, I think you had the deepest insights. And I was really influenced by Nick Zabo, Yes. Yeah, and his essay on the origins Shelling of money. Out. Shelling out. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, he took... The view of more of an anthropologist and looking at the history and what was used as money and why was it used and where, where did it come from and the idea that originally it was kind of a, a proto store of value, it wasn't a medium exchange. Uh, and he, I don't if you asked him, are you an Austrian economist? I think he would probably say no, right? um But he was definitely influenced by the Austrians. He read Hayek, yeah, and and he would describe to fellow not fellow but to Austrians like well money doesn't need to originate as a commodity it can it can work just as something that's created out of nothing mm-hmm. and as long as you have these ways of uh, guaranteeing that there's scarcity and people have confidence in that scarcity and various other attributes then it can happen and he was just dismissed and it was only the advent of Bitcoin I think that really
0: validated what he believed yeah. Yes. Um yeah, it's and you're again <laughs> not too many shout outs for your essay here, but it, the the loop, right, the feedback loop. Mm-hmm. It actually reading your essay, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, is what inspired me to I created those graphics in my early writings. They're little feedback loops, right? It's like mm-hmm. person identifies good, they're using it, they're holding it for whatever reasons reservation demand. Other people speculate on this thing, continued to continue to be used as a store of value or to continue to have reservation demand, mm-hmm. then they start to acquire it. And then that further pushes it up. And there is this, that that feels right, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we see in the world. It's what we see in Bitcoin. We see sp- all kinds of speculators, right? They'll speculate on oil fields, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You're just making these bets that the thing is going to be in greater demand in the future. Mm-hmm. But those very bets actually contribute to the registration of demand for the thing so yep. it's it's an interesting it's not linear right it's a it's circular in a way mm-hmm. i have two comments just about what you're saying with reservation demand
1: that i i, I don't think are mentioned very often but one is um reservation demand is a really important concept but i don't think many people define it and i like to define it as an extended period of time when someone wants to hold that good. Mm-hmm. And you can see a spectrum here. On the one end of a spectrum, if something becomes more and more monetized, the average duration that someone wants to hold it increases mm-hmm. because you view it as savings and you don't want to let go of it except right. when you need to let go right. of it. So you hold it longer and yes. longer. But the other end of the spectrum is when reservation demand starts disappearing you get hyperinflation mm, and what, that's th- what's happening is the duration at which someone wants to hold that thing shrinks and shrinks and shrinks to the to the point where it becomes a hot potato yeah. right in a hyperinflating monetary system people get money and they get rid of it as quickly yes. as possible yes. like oh I got paid my money I'm going to the grocery store right away yeah. because if I don't go to the grocery store it's not worth anything right. so it's that Length of time, mm-hmm. which really defines reservation demand. That's one idea I think that people need to talk about a little bit more. The other one is I think as students of money, we've learned something else, which is this process of monetization does not happen in a linear way. We're learning that with Bitcoin, it happens in these kind of wild cycles. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure this happened with gold too, it's just spread out over millennia, mm-hmm. it's
0: right.
1: spread out over 5,000 years. Yeah. So you didn't, you didn't really notice it and there was no data collected Mm -hmm. but now we can see it happens in these hype cycles and what i think is happening is that in each hype cycle you get a cohort of people who have enough knowledge to understand that bitcoin is important Mm -hmm. and the cohort just seems to grow each time the first cohort were the cypherpunks yeah and then you get a hype cycle and you run out of cypherpunks yeah and then you get a crash you get a crash And the next cycle is libertarians. Mm. Like, oh, these guys, we we kind of relate to the cypherpunks. They have the same values as us. This thing could be important. And then you run out of libertarians. Yeah. And then you get early adopters. Yeah. And you run out of early adopters. And then you get the mainstream. And so that's something I don't think we knew before. The process of monetization happens in in a sort of strange fractal pattern. Yes, Yes. Where
0: each cycle looks like the prior cycle just zoomed out. Right. And it's it's fundamentally a psychological phenomenon, right? Exactly. It's people that are, what we joke, that Bitcoin's an IQ test, right? People sort of figuring it out in different layers based on, I guess, their different worldviews or frameworks. That because Bitcoin is something very like even the Austrians, right? It was outside of their framework or worldview. So it's it was its emergence was not something we could easily assimilate into anyone's worldview, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So it seems like it kind of had to follow that path, cypherpunks, libertarians, and and outward from there.
1: Whoever's ready to uh, understand it. And I like to say that in our world, the the process of monetization is obviously happening a lot faster than gold. Mm -hmm. But I like to say information travels at the speed of light, but understanding does not. Oh, that's right. Uh, um, So that's why... Bitcoin isn't instantly monetized. Despite being the best form of money objectively mm. that humanity has ever seen, the process of monetization is not going to happen overnight because each person has to come to their own understanding right. why there's a comparative advantage of holding their savings in Bitcoin mm. versus gold or dollars or government bonds yes.
0: or whatever else it is. Yeah. and it, I, My hypothesis, at least, is the vast majority of people learn that through pain, actually, right? It's, mm-hmm. There's few people that will do the cognitive labor to kind of, kind of come to such a conclusion. It's more typical of people to suffer hyperinflation or some other form of oppression before they realize, hey, maybe I do need savings that's independent of, of government control or manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use, all of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay Server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a Coinjoin, and for Trezor Suite users, you can make coin joins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to WasabiWallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, CASA provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Now, you also wrote a paper in 2008. Or 2010. Right, 2010, yep. so after yep. 2008. Yep. And this was a time of great quantitative easing right we had the great financial crisis uh pursuant to which i think we printed somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 billion dollars
1: it actually ended up being trillions the federal reserve's yeah. balance sheet increased by about four trillion uh in 2008
0: and nine wow okay yeah. the initial authorization i think was 700 billion yes. and yep. then they Yep. yep. the top ta- the top ta- never yep. enough right yep. nope. To it. <laughs> right. Um, And at the time, this is another area where the Austrians may have, well, they were wrong, I guess there was a general consensus among Austrian economists that they thought this would lead to hyperinflation Mm -hmm. of the U S dollar. And I guess presumably other fiat currencies, but your paper that you wrote in 2010 took a, a different, uh, opinion and you thought that that was not going to be the case and turns out you were right. So could you walk us through what happened like, and what. How did you get to that conclusion uh, that was countervailing the the general consensus from Austrians?
1: Yeah, so I subscribe to the methodology of Austrian economics, but I think you have to start with the correct assumptions and the correct understanding of how to apply that methodology. And I think the problem was a lot of Austrians didn't understand the banking system. Mm. And I had a debate, I remember, with Bob Murphy at the time on whether we'd have hyperinflation or not. Just I think it was about a year ago, he interviewed me and conceded that I had won that that mm-hmm. bet, that we did not have uh, hyperinflation. And what we saw in the years after 2008-9 was kind of a controlled deflation where prices were very low and sometimes went negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Federal Reserve increased its balance sheet by trillions of dollars, and those trillions of dollars sat as reserves in the banking system. And really for you to see inflation, you need that money to be lent into the economy. And this is what's called the money multiplier theory. The mm. banks have deposits, they're taking deposits, and then they lend them out. And when they lend them out, it goes to someone, and that person deposits deposits in the bank, and it gets lo- loaned out again and again. And that right. that balloons the money supply.
0: And also, Aust- one dollar becomes hundreds or thousands even.
1: Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. And, and Austrians subscribe to that model of, uh, of money expansion, which is the causality is that the Fed creates reserves, the banks loan it out and um, uh, uh, fraction it up so it, it gets to 10 or 100 times what it was and it expands the money supply and then you get inflation because you've got all this extra money floating around into in, in the economy. The problem is that causality is not correct and it's kind of a mistaken understanding of how banks work and it basically says that banks are sitting there waiting for reserves from the Fed before they make loans. That is not how banks work. And I remember speaking to a banker who's actually a very prominent Austrian who used to work at the Mises Institute about this. And he he made a comment to me, he's like, unfortunately, these guys just don't seem to understand how loans work at banks. And he didn't want to correct them because it's kind of a, a sensitive topic to um to contradict some of these uh ideas which have been set in stone. Mm-hmm. But banks, the way the loans work is that banks will just make loans. They will go out and make as many loans as they can that they think are profitable. And if they don't have enough reserves to back those loans, they'll just go looking for those reserves. And if they start, if there's a lot of demand for reserves, the Fed will see that and it will accommodate the bank's demand to produce loans by producing more reserves so this is a really subtle point that's not well understood but it's kind of the difference of between between is the fed the dog and the banking system is the tail or is the banking system the dog and the fed is the tail right and i was concluding it was the latter mm-hmm. and so i was saying okay we're not going to have inflation because the banks ultimately are the ones who are making the decisions about whether to loan or not mm-hmm. and the banks are in real trouble right now they're capital constrained they've suffered a lot of losses they're trying to recapitalize they have a ton of reserves but they don't want to loan them out Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like imagine you have a drug dealer that's going around and giving out drugs to drug addicts and eventually the drug addicts od and Mm -hmm. there's just there's no more demand for loans yeah Yeah. there's and and there was it was just it was not just the banks it was the public as well people didn't want loans because they were you been know, constraint—they've been wiped out, yeah. and and uh, the capital constraints increased on banks. So it was both sides. So the demand for loans plummeted. Mm-hmm. It did not matter that mm-hmm. the Fed printed all of these reserves. It was—it was as if they had created a trillion dollars and buried it underground. Right. And so we didn't see hyperinflation, and, and I said we won't see anything like that for many many years. You know, fast forward to 2020 and what happened with um COVID. It's very different to quantitative, quantitative easing. It wasn't just the creation of reserves. It was that the federal government was literally giving out money, mm-hmm. putting it in people's hands. Yeah, it was
0: helicopter money.
1: Helicopter yes. money. Exactly yeah. right. It was kind of the Milton Friedman experiment. If you want to create inflation, just get in a helicopter and drop money from mm-hmm. the sky. And they did that. Yeah. They did that. And and so my view on what happened in 2020 was that we would probably see inflation. Mm-hmm. And we have seen inflation because that money gets directly in the economy. When you give money to uh, you a know, family who needs to buy groceries, this is gonna it's going to get spent. Yeah, yeah. And, and So it's different to giving the money to a bank that's capital constrained, that doesn't want a loan, and where the public at large doesn't want loans. Right, right. Um, So yeah, this was another big miss by Austrian economists. And I, I think these two things in the last decade or two decades with the two most important monetary questions the Austrians got run and and it's disappointing because if anyone had the tools to understand these phenomena it was the Austrians and just in 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 the wider Austrian community they they really missed on these two
0: do you still think the Fed is more reactive if I understood you correctly your 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 view was the Fed was more reactive than proactive Mm -hmm. right Mm the the tail being wagged mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. is that still your view in the uh, the current economic situation where the fed is now producing uh, what are we like eight trillion dollars since march 2020 something to that effect mm-hmm. are they still going to be reactive to the commercial banking sector or do you think um the fed is the the current distribution of money which has been helicopter money is that going to be um are they going to be more the dog less the tail i guess is the question
1: I think that's a great question because I think it's true. The Fed can be the dog; mm-hmm. it's possible they have the power to be the dog, right. and I think they're trying to be now because they've been behind the curve with this inflation. They didn't realize it was a problem. They didn't in they didn't they realize denied it. they denied it. <laughs> yeah. They said it was transient. They didn't re- realize it had become structural, mm-hmm. and so they're behind the curve and trying to fix the problem. The problem is they're really constrained in what they can do. Mm-hmm. They've-, they've increased interest rates to five percent, which is you know, a big jump. But it's certainly not anything like what Volcker did in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're constrained because go- the government debt position is much, much higher than it was right. in the 80s. We have debt, which is 130% of GDP, and that's not even including entitlements, which are just gigantic. Right. Right. Uh, so, to increase the interest rate, the, the debt service on our debt actually becomes a big number. hmm and if you if the Fed would increase interest rates to say ten or fifteen percent, which really would probably hurt uh, sorry would impact inflation and bring it down mm. uh that would make it our debt servicing unsustainable right you would have to tax a hundred percent of everyone's income mm. to pay the debt yeah uh so so they're behind the curve
0: this is a rock and a hard place basically
1: they're they're trying to project confidence and they're trying to convince the market they're serious. Uh, but the problem is they they may not have enough ammunition to solve this problem. I think we're in a position in the US now where t- to solve the, the debt problem, you either raise taxes, incredibly difficult and politically unpopular, or cut spending, which is also incredibly unpopular and mm. will not win your vote. So there's a third option, which is try and inflate away the debt. Yeah, And so that's always the politically most palatable option. Yes. So I think what we're going to see, given the position we're in now, it's more of a structural inflation. And they let the genie out of the bottle with COVID because they just created so much money that that inflation was not contained. And once you lose credibility as the Federal Reserve, it's really hard to get it back. People, right. people don't believe you. And all of their power comes from credibility. Yes. Uh,
0: confidence game. It's a confidence game. Yeah.
1: Fiat money is ultimately a confidence game. And once you've lost
0: that confidence, it's game over. Wow. What are your current views on the US dollar? Do you think we see, obviously, structural inflation, I think you just said, do you think we see hyperinflation in our lifetimes and the years ahead? I know this is very hard to predict. Well, since we're
1: both going to live to 100, I think, (laughs) I hope, uh, I I think we probably would see uh, hyperinflation in our lifetime. I don't think it's an imminent phenomenon. And I'm always very careful to be Uh, I try to be circumspect about this because I think it's easy to be hyperbolic and say we're going to see hyperinflation next year. The US has um, a lot of assets. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
1: We have a lot of land that's very valuable and we have a lot of productive capacity. So the US can service its debt for now. Uh, It's just the, the Fed can't get inflation under control without making it impossible to service the debt. So it's in this really awkward position of trying to say that it's getting inflation under control, but not really being able to do enough. And And so I think we're going to be in this kind of awful middle ground where we see 5 to 6% inflation, and it'll go up or down. Maybe there'll be some years where it'll be three, and there'll be some years where it's eight or nine. Mm. And I think what we're going to see is a period kind of close to the 70s. And that ultimately culminates in a crisis when right. people really lose confidence in the dollar, and then you're on the verge of hyperinflation, and someone needs to make a very tough decision, uh,
0: which Volcker is Volker to break the back of yeah, inflation. You
1: need yeah. uh, you need a massive recession. Um, but again, is it possible? Is it possible for the Fed to do that without breaking the system overall? Volker could do what he. Was able to do just because the U.S. debt position in the 80s was forty percent of GDP. Right, 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 right. The U.S. was able to service its debt, yeah. uh, and and Reagan also kind of oversaw a period of incredible growth. Because, both because of deregulation and also because of uh, Moore's Law yes. and and the advent of the computer age and productivity. Right. And you can grow your way out of this problem. Yeah, we may have some of those
0: tailwinds with Maybe. AI, like that's obviously hard to tell.
1: That's the one thing that could save us. Yeah. And that's a really good point. I, I gave you three options, which is cut spending, raise taxes, or inflate your way out of it. You can also grow your way out of it. Right. And I, I hope
0: that is something that happens, but we don't know. It's an open question. Isn't that kind of a double-edged sword, though? Because it, it extends the life of fiat in a way. Mm-hmm. Like if we get more productivity, then there's more economic surplus to be harvested by the central bank, so sort of prolongs the life support of fiat. When really, I think, well, us morally and ethically would look look to fiat to reach an earlier demise as mm-hmm. being like a good outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know this that again feels kind of like a rock and a hard place. Like sure, we want the productivity gains, that's good for the economy, but it also extends the life of fiat, which is a big problem.
1: Mhm. Good and bad are often intermixed. Yeah. And I, I I like to always think of the good as the good and call it good and the bad as the bad and call mm-hmm. it bad. Uh, even though they they interact, I think anything that can make us more productive and give us more wealth and more time with our kids and our families those are good things that we should be happy about even if it makes
0: some bad things you know last a little longer yeah yeah the yin and the yang came to me as you said that yeah um (laughs) vj thank you for doing this man thanks for having um where can people find you
1: on the internet uh probably the best place is twitter real underscore vj um and medium where my article is uh and uh, i have a book you can buy on amazon the bullish case for bitcoin
0: Beautiful. We'll link to all that in the show notes. And thank you again.
1: Thanks, Robert. Yeah.